0: with you will be in James chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn there, James chapter 2. I wanted to share with you a story about a guy named Jerry. Now, Jerry had a problem. He had this beautiful house and he got new neighbors. Anybody else ever got new neighbors? You're never sure what you're going to get. Well, Jerry's new neighbors were a little bit different, but not, not hugely different. He got to know them and he thought, these people, you know, I can handle. But one of the things he didn't quite understand was these people's love for rabbits. Jerry's new neighbors had a love for rabbits and not just any kind of rabbit like a very particular expensive show breed of rabbit I don't even know what that is but that's what it was so Jerry got to know his neighbors neighbors moved in for a couple weeks of a few weeks after they moved in Jerry looks outside and his dog is standing in the backyard with one of those rabbits in its mouth jerry freaks out and he 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 runs out to the dog and he, he gets the rabbit and pulls it pulls it out and he looks at it and sure enough the rabbit is dead and now he's freaking out my new neighbors are gonna hate me they love these rabbits it's a crazy thing and then he gets this idea he looks at the rabbit very carefully and he realizes the dirt rabbit is dirty and it's wet but it doesn't have any puncture wounds or blood on it and so he begins to think Maybe I can get away with something. And so he takes the rabbit inside, and and he puts it in the sink, and he goes and gets his wife's hair shampoo, conditioner. I don't even ladies, I don't know what all that stuff is. And he starts to wash the rabbit up real good, and he gets his wife's hair dryer, and he dries the rabbit up really good. And he has it looking like brand new, and his thought process is, I'm going to go put this rabbit back in the cage. And then when they see it, they'll just think he'll die, and they won't think it was me or my dog. This is Arkansas, right? This is how we roll. And, and so Jerry does this, and sure enough, later on in that day, his neighbor comes home and, and opens the or goes back in the yard and looks at the rabbits and comes to the cage with a dead rabbit on it, and he hears his neighbor scream this blood curdling scream. And a few minutes after that, his neighbor comes marching across the property. Now Jerry's not giving anything away, right? He, he's gonna he's gonna play this as long as he can, and so he's like, "So hey, what's up?" And and the neighbor starts to tell him like, "My my rabbit passed away," and Jerry wanted to stop it before he got accused. Of, oh that's so sad. I'm sorry. You know, can I pray with you or anything like that? And the neighbor cuts him off and goes, no, you don't understand. My rabbit died yesterday. I buried it. And now it's back in its cage looking like it's been to the beauty salon. That's a good joke, isn't it? If you like that, you need to go look up Jerry Clare on, on Facebook or on YouTube. He's, he's hilarious. But th- that story that story tells me something. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. When something is dead, you can wash it up, you can dress it up, you can put makeup on it. But when something is dead, you know it's dead. And that's because being pretty or having a certain look about you is not what determines life. What determines life is action. Correct. So we've been in the book of James and James is going to talk about life and death today and he's going to talk about specifically whether our faith is alive or dead. James started last week in chapter 1 talking about talking about what faith is and he well actually he said uh, religion, what we're going to call real faith, he called pure religion, what we're going to call flatline faith. Last week he called useless and vain religion. And the difference to James is if you are a hearer of the word only, somebody who comes in contact with the word of God or if you're a hearer and a doer of the word. Someone who comes in contact contact with the word of God and allows it to change them. James would say if all you do is hear the word, your religion is useless. And he began giving us some examples of what it looks like to have pure religion or a real faith. He talked about controlling our mouth. We'll come back to that again next week. He talked about caring for others. And so as we go into chapter 2, James is continuing that thought process on being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And specifically he's going to begin with talking about how do we relate to other people because see becoming a follower of Christ is not about you know coming to church and putting on a show it's about a change in who we are and part of that is a change in our value system especially when it becomes to people because as a follower of Christ we no longer get to do the worldly thing and look at people and categorize them and say you have value for this but you have no value for that For us, our value comes from the heart of Christ, who has a value for each and every individual. And James is going to start today with a new concept of how that applies to relationships in church. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to read verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. James speaking, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. That word partiality there, that means unfair bias. So don't don't hold the faith of Lord Jesus Christ with an unfair bias against people. Verse 2 For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit Here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality? Have you not shown unfair bias amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love him? But you who have dishonored the poor man, do you do the rich not oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. So James is going to begin here and he's going to begin talking about unfair bias. Unfair bias is when we begin to look at people and we begin to categorize them by some metric that the world tells us to categorize people in. And in that categorization of people, we begin to say this category of people is worth more they have more value to me maybe they can do something for me maybe society says they're more valuable and on the other hand this category over here they're less value based about valuable based upon their characteristics now let me say this because this is going to be applied a lot this is not only anti-biblical this is anti-christian when we begin to take people and assign them value structures and how good they are to me or how much I can use them, this is not the heart of Jesus Christ. Because it's the basis of the gospel, not the fact that Jesus Christ came and died for all men and women. Like we, we exist as followers of Christ, not because of anything we've done, not because we have value, but because Christ looked at us who had no value, who rejected him and said, I'll die for them anyway. And so when we look at ourselves in the mirror, that's the value we should have for ourselves. But when we look at other people, that's the way we should have value for them. See, following Christ means our value structure changes. Where the world puts people into categories, when we adopt God's values, the only category that matters is people who God loves. And yet God loves everybody. So your first take home truth this morning, number one, is believers find value in every human as equals in God's grace. Believers find value in every human as equals in God's grace. And so the application of this would be that we live and we treat people that way, that we see value in the rich and the poor. We see value in the people who live close and the people that live far, the young and the old. We see value in everybody. Now, James is going to give us a hypothetical of how this might apply, where we might show bias towards somebody. He's going to use specifically social standing. He's going to use something that I believe is is probably going to be constant across time from the time this was written 2,000 years ago to now. He gives us two categories of people that might enter a church. A rich man who the world would say has a lot of value. The world would say that because this individual is rich, that he has power and influence, that he's going to be able to contribute financially and therefore you should court him. Everybody wants to be him or be with him. And the result of this, James says, is you might see this person ascribe value to them and give them a special place to sit special attention but on the other hand when a poor man walks into the church the world says this person has no value they have no social standing they have nothing to offer they may even fail at some of the social norms that that everybody expects everybody to know and the the results might be in a church that that person might be ignored or placed out of sight james says this is not a biblical ethic and that this is wrong see keep in mind as a church that that we don't exist for the sake of one group of people or another we exist for the sake of jesus christ and because jesus christ loves everybody we love everybody Several years ago, a friend of mine up at Concord, Myron, um, his church supports a church in India, and uh, so financially sends support to this, and Myron had been over and worked with that church several years, and he'd made really close friends with the pastor whose name was Jacob, um, an Indian pastor from an Indian church. And several years ago, um, Jacob came to Concord to meet with Myron, and because of that, I got to meet him, and I started telling Myron, it's like, I'd love to sit down and talk with this guy and, and ask him about church in India. And Myron said, well, he's staying at our house, come have supper with us tonight, and you'll have all the opportunity to talk to him that you want to and here's the question that I had for Jacob in India which is a predominantly Hindu society they have something called the caste system it's a social system where you are born into a category and no matter what you cannot leave that category it's written into their constitution there are even laws about how long you can spend with somebody outside of your caste somebody lower or higher than you it's a completely segregated society based on social standing And I had a question, how does that work in God's house? Do you have a church for those in the high caste and a church for those in the low caste? What do you do? And so I met with Jacob and I sat down and I said, I've got a question for you. I want to know more about the caste system. And I said, what caste are you? What social standing are you? And you could tell that it made him uncomfortable. He didn't really want to answer the question. In fact, he didn't answer the question. All he said is, I'm in a high caste. He didn't tell me which one. He just said a high caste. And I said, well, how does that work in your church? Because you live in a society that has literally legalized or made it illegal for you to mingle with people outside of your social standing. How does that work in your church? And he thought for a second and he said, in church, there's no caste. In God's house, the lowest of the low, sit beside and eat and fellowship with the highest of the high. Because we reject the worldly standards of what the, or what the world says of people who have value. And we ascribe to them the value that Jesus Christ has. That's what God calls us to do. Now, I'm going to argue this, that this is a biblical principle exemplified by a specific scenario. I'm going to argue that James' main point is that he doesn't want us to create categories and judge people based on these categories, treating them unfairly. And the application that he happened to choose was rich versus poor. But I don't believe that's the only application of what James is saying here about treating people with partiality or unfair bias. And we see in in the book of Galatians, Paul writing, he says in there, he says, look, there is neither neither, uh, free nor slave, Jew nor Greek, male or female. So Paul goes through... And he says, look, social status doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Biological gender doesn't matter when it comes to if one is more valuable than the other. In God's house, all are the same because we are all Christ's children. And if we think about that, I don't think we even have to tie that down to just the categories that the Bible mentions. Because I believe we can categorize people and judge their value on hundreds or not thousands of different things. Do you guys know there's an election this year? Somebody told me the other day, apparently it's a big deal. I don't know. And here's one of the things we see in our society. Have we not divided our society into two different political parties? And does our society not say if you're part of one political party, you must hate the other one and vice versa? That's what the world is teaching us, that your value is found in your identity as a political political entity and that the people of a different political entity have no value. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that because somebody votes different than I do that they have a lesser value. But this is what the world says. Spend 10 minutes on social media and you'll see that. Well, we can bring this into a lot of different categories. And I think it's important to understand that all people, all people are different and God created us that way. But we can't judge people based on those differences. I know there are several of you that drove to church this morning in a a Chevrolet truck. And, and, uh, you know, I still love you and I try not to bully you about that. I just want you to understand the goodness that is God's truck, Dodge Ram's. That's very important for you. Like, you know, some of you guys are getting ready to walk out. If you drove to to church in a Ford truck, uh, we're praying for your salvation. Like, that's very important to us. But we, don't, we, we joke about that, but we don't actually categorize people based on what they drive. We, we, we shouldn't categorize people based on if they're from Arkansas or a different state or America or a different country because Jesus Christ didn't. And to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ means that I want to be like him. He is my ultimate example. I want to love like him. I want to talk like him. I want to teach like him. I want to serve like him. That's what, we, uh, what we're called to do. And the Bible says this, is that to fail to do this is a sin. And James goes into a lot of detail that I'm not going to break down today. But basically what he says, he says, The same God who said do not commit murder and adultery has told you not to treat people differently based on whatever category you put them into. And if you break one of these rules, you break all of them and you're guilty before God. Now, as James finishes that example he's going to swing back to the main point remember the main point last week was being doers and hearers of the law being i'm sorry being doers versus only being a hearer of the law and he's been giving us some examples and now he's going to swing back to the main topic and here's the question that james is going to pose for us if a true follower comes in contact with the word of god applies it to their life and it changes them what do we do with someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but there never seems to be any change associated with their following of Jesus? What, what does that mean? And, and so James is going to address that, if you still got your Bibles with you, in verses 14 through 17. Listen to what he says here. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Let me pause on those two words for just a second. Faith is a belief, a commitment, or a trust in God. Works are actions based upon that faith. Okay? So to understand, we're going to deal with works and faith a lot here. So let me start again. 14. What does it profit, my brethren? brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, and be filled but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, James is going to now begin to address those of us who read this about being doers and hearers and think, what if I don't? what if i don't want to change what if i'm really comfortable with just kind of you know showing up to church hearing somebody preach and then going home and not changing that's that's really all i want and i don't want to be challenged more what what do we do with that and i'll be honest with you i think there's probably some of us in here that we fall in that category i want to be a part of church i want to i want to kind of ride somebody's coattails into heaven but i'm not just real committed I think James is talking to two groups of people here that may or may not actually be saved. I think James is talking about people that, number one, suffer with a spiritual laziness. People who want to do more, but it's just it's a lot of work. I don't know if y'all have noticed this following Jesus thing. Well, where are you at? <laughs> it's a lot. You'll be at church on a Saturday morning on a work day working a tile machine for four hours. Like, it's a lot to follow Jesus. It's a lot to give with all of your heart. It's a lot to forgive. It's a lot to walk away from your sin. It costs a lot to follow Christ. And it's easy for us to fall into that spiritual laziness where we kind of go, eh, that's good enough. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself, he said about you and me, if you go into Revelation and look at what he says to the church of Laodicea, which represents the time period we live in now, he says, you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And then he tells us how offensive that is to him. Uh, James may also be talking to, in addition to the spiritual, uh, spiritual lazy, he may also be talking to those who are in spiritual rebellion. There are many people who want to be a part of a church, who want to make it into heaven, but they don't want to surrender their life to Christ. And so James is going to go through and he's going to talk about faith. And this is what he says. One of the most shocking verses, in my opinion, of the Bible. He says, faith without works is dead. This is where we get the name of this series, Challenging Flatlined Faith. And we need to take this seriously. This is something we really need to camp on and make sure that we understand because James seems to be monkeying with the definition of faith. And faith, as as the Bible tells me, is our pathway, or I'm, let me take that back, it is how we receive the pathway into salvation. So it's important for us to know when James starts talking about faith and he starts saying, hey, some of you may have a dead faith. We need to stop and pay attention and go, I need to know more about this because that's huge. That relates to my salvation. That relates to my eternity. James, what are you talking about? A dead faith. And so if you're biblically literate, or let me think about it. If you have a lot of Bible knowledge, I guess I should say, you're probably familiar with this other verse, which is where we get what appears to possibly be a contradiction. Listen to this. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's Paul saying that. And then James comes in a little bit later and says, but faith without works is dead. And that creates a little bit of a question. Are they, are they in disagreement? Paul says, hey, faith saves you, and it's not about works. And then James says, yeah, but faith saves you, but it is about works. And so is it possible that these two have their definitions mixed up? Is it possible that the Bible contradicts itself? Now, if you're starting to get nervous, stick with me. I think you're going to be happy with where we end up. So don't start questioning everything. But I want to ask that. That's your next take-home truth. Number two, does the Bible contradict itself? And I want to give you three basic understandings we have of the Bible to help you answer this question. Anytime somebody challenges you on it, anytime you come across something that you don't understand in the Bible, and you say, doesn't that sound like the opposite of what I read somewhere else? So the number one basic on your take-home truth, the number one, is that all Scripture is God-breathed. This comes from 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came of the will of men, but holy Men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Listen, I want you to understand something about this Bible. This Bible is not a self help book. If the best thing that you've got going on for you today is you want to come to church and figure out some things to make your life easier, that's that's not what we're doing here. This book, while one of the best history books in the history of the world, is not just a history book. This book is God's love letter to you. He wrote every single word of it so that you could know Him, so that you could come to faith in Him, and so that you could be with Him in eternity eBay's Every single bit of this Bible is breathed by God. It's important and it's completely special. And just as a side note, I want you to know, my job is not to come up here and give you my opinion or tell you what I think or out of the wealth of knowledge I have about God, tell you what you should live like. My job is to take that book into the best of my ability, make it understandable and applicable to your life while you sit here and listen. That, that's what we're doing here. So scripture is God breathed. That's the first thing we want to start off with. Uh, basic number two on your take home truths, is that God is perfect and cannot contradict himself. This comes from Hebrews 6.18. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. People have asked before, what is something that God cannot do? And some people will try to throw you up, well, if God can do anything, can God create a rock that he can't move? You know, that's that's a weird question. The Bible tells us there is only one thing that God cannot do, and that is to contradict his own nature. His nature will not allow him to do something that is out of his nature. God is perfect in every way. And the scripture says that God cannot lie. So so follow my logic here. If God is the author of scripture, and let's say that he was to write contradictory statements, one of those things would have to be a lie. Is that correct? Is that logic correct? Which is impossible. It is impossible for God to write one truth and one lie because he can't contradict himself. So therefore, if God writes two things that appear to contradict themselves, it's not that they contradict each other, it's maybe that you and I don't understand them correctly. Does that make sense? So basic number three, when you're reading scripture and you're understanding it, is that scripture works together to produce truth. This comes from Second Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. There's that, there's that God authorship of scripture again. But notice that first word. All scripture is given by God. And it has these jobs. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. All scripture has the same few purposes. And all scripture works together for those goals. So let's look at the context of this now that we, we've answered that question. I want to, or we've asked that question, I want to re ask that question. Can scripture contradict itself? Absolutely not. You guys aren't listening. Let me try that again. Can scripture contradict itself? No. So what we have is we have two scriptures here that are addressing the same topic from different directions. And even if I don't understand them, I know that they have to work together some way. Is that right? We all on the same page? So let's look at context for just a second. And see if we can figure out what's going on. You have Paul and James. They're both addressing the same general topic of faith, but they're coming at the same topic with different problems. Now, Paul is a former Pharisee. If you read about Paul, this man spent his life trying to make himself perfect by God. Uh, And as he grows as a church planner and evangelist, he realizes that his old life of trying to make himself perfect with works did not work. He came to faith in Jesus Christ when Jesus came to him. And so Paul, a large amount of his teachings is teaching other legalists, other Pharisees like him, to reject this concept of salvation by works, and he evangelizes by teaching salvation through faith, which is the way that he got saved, the way I got saved, and the same way that you have been saved if you are a Christian. James, on the other hand, he's coming at the same topic, but James was a pastor of a large church, the Church of Jerusalem. Now, the time that James wrote this, we don't know how big the, the church at Jerusalem was. We know at one point it was at least 7,000 people. Poor James. <laughs> He's dealing with a lot. And so James is coming at this in a different way. While Paul saw a lot of people who had tried to make themselves right before with God with works, James saw a lot of people who came and claimed that they had faith, but undoubtedly he saw some people who weren't all in undoubtedly he saw some people who claimed faith but he didn't see the effects of faith in his life and so these two are coming at this question from two different ways so let's let's begin with the basics from what paul said in ephesians your third take on truth is salvation is a free gift of god received by faith Salvation is a free gift of God received by faith. If you're here this morning and you think you're getting into heaven for any other reason than the fact that Jesus died for you and you accepted that in faith, you're wrong and you need to come talk to me. Because your eternity is hanging in the balance. That's not right at all. See, we fall sometimes into a belief that we have to earn God's love because that's what the world teaches us. We're discipled in a worldview that says, if you want to be loved, you better make people love you. How many billions of dollars do Americans spend each year on fancy clothes, makeup, and hair products? Why? Because our society says, if you want to have value, you better be attractive. How much effort do we put into our lives of trying to climb the ladder or get the bigger bank account or have the nice things so that people will look at us and go, wow, they've really got it together because we want people to think we have value. And sometimes that concept will carry over, that concept will carry over into our faith. And it will make us think that we have to earn God's love. And I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm up here, I'm an imperfect man. This is something I struggle with so much. I, I revert back to legalistic Pharisee, Brian, who's like, oh, I've got to follow all the rules and do all the right things or God won't love me. And I know if I do it, somebody else in here does it as well. But the scripture promises us that God's love for us is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon who he is. Now, James is going to take a different aim. He's going to take an aim at dead faith. And here's what he's going to be saying. He's not saying that works produce salvation. He's saying that salvation produces works. Do you see the difference in those two things? Works does not bring salvation into your life, but salvation into your life will bring works in your life. So your fourth take-home truth is works is not an accomplisher of salvation. It is a proof of it. Works is not an accomplisher of salvation. It is a proof of salvation. So the example he uses is, let's just say, let's just say this, let's say that you walked up to a brother or sister, somebody that you knew and you loved, and you realized they were hungry, and they were naked, and you were like, okay, brother, I want you, gosh, I want you so much to be full. I want you to have food in your belly, and I want you to be clothed and be safe from these elements out here. That's what I want for you. But then you walked away. Would anybody believe that you actually had a care for the well-being of that person? absolutely not. Your actions do not prove what your words say. And so what James is saying to you and me as believers in Christ is that there are sometimes we can say, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a Christian. I go to church. But sometimes our actions don't back up what our words say. Let's continue reading. He's going to give us some more examples of this verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Keep your Bibles open, we're going to come back to that one more time. James is going to take aim at the word belief. What does it mean to believe? Once again, that's another important word we need to know the definition of, because that is the key to our salvation. What did Jesus say in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And one of the things that Christians can do, and it appears at James's time as well as our times, is we can take that word belief and we can say that word means that I have a mental agreement that Jesus existed. And that's not at all what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't taught, hey, do you think that I really did walk around? Did you believe that Bible story? Good, you're going to heaven. When Jesus talked about belief and he talked about following him, he said things like, count the cost before you make a decision to follow me. Jesus said things like, pick up your cross and follow me. And so Jesus wasn't just talking about a faith that is a mental agreement of his existence. He was talking about submission. He was talking about choosing him, a conviction, a trust, and a decision to follow. James uses this example. He said, perfect example, all through the New Testament, Jesus continually was confronted by demons. And these demons would call out to him. they go, uh, you're the son of God. And they would fall down at his feet and they would tremble. James says, well, those demons aren't forgiven of their sins. Those demons aren't saved. Those demons don't have faith. Those demons don't have belief. They know who he is. But they still live in rebellion against him. And because of that, there is no salvation for them. What James would say to us is we need to have a faith that causes us to surrender to Jesus, not one that makes us mentally agree he existed. Last set of verses, I promise. Stick with me. Verses 21 through 26. James is going to give us some examples of what a faith that produces works looks like. 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on an altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works he was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. Verse 25. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead so is faith without works also so James is going to go back to stories that almost everybody he was writing to at this time would have known stories of Abraham and Rahab And if you grew up in church, chances are you heard these stories when you were young and you went to Sunday school or you went to children's church. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute who is special in scripture because she is one of five women listed in the lineage of Jesus. Everybody else's men, one of five that Jesus uh, that was listed in the lineage. So he's going to point to actions of extreme faith that prove their faith. In the example of Abraham, he looks at the almost sacrifice of Isaac. God came to Abraham who had not had any children. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And from that son, there will be many nations drawn out of you. There will be people forever. And I'm making a covenant with you and a covenant with those people. They will be my people. And Abraham was an old, old man. He's like, I don't think that's going to work. But eventually it did. It did. He and his wife had a son named Isaac. It was their only child. It was the only child of promise. And then as Isaac was growing up, God came to Abraham and said, Hey, you know that son I promised you and the one I promised you you would do great things through? I want you to take him up. I want you to build an altar. I want you to stab him and sacrifice him. God's a little intense sometimes, right? And what did Abraham do? Because he had faith and belief and trust in God. He took Isaac, and he gathered wood, and he began to go about the process of obeying God. And when Isaac would ask him, where's the sacrifice that we're going to sacrifice? Here's what Abraham said, God will provide a sacrifice. And right as Abraham, in his obedience, was preparing to take the life of his own son, God said, stop. And he provided a sacrifice for him. Boy, that takes faith to follow God in that kind of obedience. That's not a dead faith that just says, oh yeah, I like God. That is being all out totally committed. Rahab was the same thing. Rahab was a Gentile. I mean, she was an enemy of the people of God. And when the Israelites surrounded Jericho, they sent in spies. And Rahab took these spies and she changed sides. She said, I'm turning my back on my people and I'm going to serve God's people because I believe that God is real. See, her faith led her to an action. Uh, What James is saying about you and I is: if we have a true faith, it should create movement in us. It should create some change in us. It should be visible to others. So here's your last take-home truth: is a saving faith will move believers to action. A saving faith will move believers to action. And I think it's important to say as we prepare to leave here that the the reverse of that is true: a faith that does not have works is not a saving faith. A faith that has not changed you, a faith that has not grown in you, a faith that has not caused you to surrender to Christ is not a saving faith. It's not going to get you into heaven. And I think what James is doing here is he's given us a challenge, not to gauge the faith of others, not to judge others based on do we see works in their life, but to gauge our faith. Do I have a faith that just shows up to church or do I have a faith that produces works and change in me? Rick, if you want to start to come up here. We had a former pastor here who would share his testimony with us, and uh, his testimony was like maybe a lot of yours. He grew up in church. He had godly parents. Uh, He used to say this. He said, when I was young, I was on drugs. My parents drug me to Sunday school and they drug me to church and they drug me to Wednesday nights. And as a young man growing up in church, he knew he needed to do something with this Jesus thing and so he gave a profession of faith and was baptized. But about the time he was 15, something wasn't right. And on a particular Friday night, a storm blew in and he was terrified of dying because he realized in that moment, I have not truly placed my faith in Christ. And if I die, in this moment I will spend eternity separated from him he couldn't wait to go to church and he was going to wait for the invitation time to go talk to the pastor and there was a visiting pastor and he said that guy had the audacity that morning to preach on unsaved church members people who come to church who have the the outward appearance of being saved but really aren't and he ran down that that afternoon and accepted Christ as his savior he's not the only person who has that story He's not the only person who tried to get it right and messed up. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that. He's talking about the judgment day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He said, there's going to be a lot of people and they're going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I teach for you? Didn't I cast out demons in your eyes? Didn't I do all of these things for you? In the scariest verse in the Bible, Jesus says, depart from me, you who commit iniquity. I never knew you. And so this morning, I want to ask you to take a gauge of what your faith is. Can you see in your life a faith that has changed you, has grown, and is proven by works? Or is God telling you right now that there's something fake within you? That He wants you to truly commit to Him and become His child? If you'd like to talk to me this morning about salvation, I'll be standing right here. You can come up here and pray. But don't leave here the same way that you walked in. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, online.